Hello everyone, I'm Philip Dickens and this is From the Hill of Megiddo, the podcast serialization of my book of the same name. In the last episode, we saw the immediate aftermath of the first trumpet of Armageddon, with humanity now aware of the existence of demons while a vampire turf war was starting up. Now, let's dive into the next three chapters and see what follows. <laughs> Chapter 24 a month after the trumpet sounded, a school opened in the Egbeth area of the city. This was nothing out of the ordinary in itself. The difference was that this was a school for demons. Its purpose had never been publicly announced. The land purchase and the bulk of the work had happened before the world at large became aware that there were demons. But when the final touches were being put, an overheard conversation had led first to whispers and rumours, then to a blog which quickly became viral through social media, and finally coverage in the local and national media. Things had escalated quickly. Online petitions had gathered thousands of signatures in a matter of days. Leaflets spread in the surrounding area had built up to angry protests, vandalism and violence. On the day it opened, the Agadatha school was the scene of a heated confrontation, so far kept from violence only by an overwhelming police presence. The high walls which had so far kept the school itself from damage were covered in graffiti. The slogans sprawled across it matched by similar ones on signs and placards. Many were homemade by the hundreds of people who had come from the surrounding area. They were joined by more professional signs, branded by various groups which had latched onto the protest for their own purposes. Religious organisations, churches and political parties from the big four to the far right. Many leaflets and one large banner also announced the presence of the Human Defence League, an anti-demon campaign which would use that day to make the leap from online to street activity. Facing them was a similar sized body of demons. Amongst them skin colours ranged from human tones to various shades of red, blue, green and yellow. Toby's kin, blue skinned with spikes in the cheeks and crests on the heads of the males, were the predominant species in the group. Among the rest, those with spikes, claws, horns or scales were matched in number by those who could pass, if not for the colour of their skin. Each group was contained by metal barricades and faced by a row of cops, with 20 feet of open space dividing the opposing camps. Logans, insults and obscenities hung thick in the air between them. Miles watched all of this from across the road among a sparse gathering of spectators who had stopped or come out of homes and workplaces to see what was going on. From the conversations he overheard, their sympathies lay with those opposing the demons, though they were reluctant to get actively involved. Well, it's just that the kids like, said one. It doesn't seem right. Yeah, I know what you mean, said another. But they grow up and they're still demons. An old man crossed the road from the protest and started handing out leaflets. All around him, people talking started to read. But Miles kept his hands in his pockets and stared until the old man's hand dropped and he walked away, muttering. Still got all your charm, I see. He saw Hazel approaching him. She had her strawberry blonde hair loose, hanging in soft curls around her face and making her look younger than she ordinarily did. He wore a grin and he felt one creeping along his own face, despite himself. I have no idea what you mean, he said. Sure you don't? He ignored her look, which carried away the questions about his behaviour and the distance he had been keeping. Organising the demons is going well anyway, he said. You don't think so? 
You do. This kind of trouble is going to bubble up no matter what. Better it's not left unopposed. Is that why you're here? Nah, I need the fresh air. He said, and again she gave him a look to force a smile out of him. Look, you're not going to get me to admit that I give a shit about other people, because it'll spoil my image as a brood and loner, alright? Is the fact that you've got a sense of humour also a closely guarded secret? Fuck off, he said with a smirk. The noise from the demonstration rose suddenly, and the police advanced on both sides, picking up the barricades and using them to drive the two groups further apart. Another line of police emerged from a van and parked on the side road. Bricks, bottles and other missiles passed in the air as well as words. Miles and Hazel exchanged a look, and then ran across the road to see what was happening. Peter could see the terror on his little sister's face, even with a scarf wrapped around it, and feel her mitten-covered hand trembling as it gripped his hand tight. The tip of her tail was twitching frantically as he led her towards the gates. In truth, he was scared himself. The hail of stones and bottles had so far missed them, but one young boy was now crying and being shielded by adults, his forehead bloody from the impact. The rattling of the barricades was like a steel thunder, and walking between them it was horrible to see the one containing their friends being pushed back, while the one holding back those Becky called the mean people seemed to be edging closer. The clashes had started when the gate had opened, just a fraction so that the kids could pass through without leaving the entrance vulnerable to being rushed, but enough to send the human protesters into a frenzy. A few adults on the demon side were allowed past the barricades to help herd the children in, but it was nowhere near enough, and Peter felt horribly exposed. It was a matter of seconds between them leaving the barricade and entering the gates, but they were long seconds, each one dragged out by the impact of missiles all around him and the hateful words polluting the air, all overlaid with the sound of his own heartbeat. The memory rose of him and Becky crawling through a vent to escape the shelter, what now seemed like an age ago. He had been scared then, of the lizard man and his message to the other demons that turn against the impure in their midst. But that was a very different kind of fear. He had never experienced anything like this. The mob, the frenzy, and the very real possibility that in an instant he and Becky could be hurt. Or worse. When they were through the gates, the world sped up again. Another boy was hit, this time on the cheek, and dragged through the gates, wailing by his younger brother. The last of the kids got through the gate. The barricade holding the humans fell. The gate closed. The demonstration collided with the police. The barricade holding the demons was pushed back even further. A man, maybe 20 and wearing a tracksuit, dodged the police and dragged a glass bottle along the railings of the gate. Becky screamed as it shattered, and Peter pulled it back. The man didn't have time to gloat as a hand grabbed him by the scruff of the neck and flung him. It wasn't a police officer and he flew several feet into the air rather than sprawling to the ground. Several of his mates saw what had happened, though they didn't quite comprehend it, and rounded on the attacker. A moment later they were on the floor, bleeding. Several more people fell or flew, and finally Peter saw who was attacking them. Miles, who had come to their rescue before. The crowd retreated from him, with the police recovering enough to advance on them, though none touched Miles. There was a clang on the gates and Peter jumped. A woman he recognised, it took him a moment to remember that her name was Hazel, fell against the gate. Then she ducked and a man cried out as he punched steel. She kneed him in the stomach and flung him to the ground before wading into the rest of the group who had found themselves behind the police lines. 
and touched Peter's shoulder and he looked up to see a demon with a dark green leathery skin and one large eye in the center of his head. A teacher. He was wearing a suit and smiled kindly at the boy. Come on, son, he said. You can't stay watching this all day. You have classes to attend. Beyond the teacher, Peter saw that the other children were already on the way into the building. He nodded and followed them, pulling Becky along with him. As they went, the noise of the fight continued, and Peter could only hope that this wouldn't be a daily fixture in his life from now on. In the failed push against the police, Toby had been knocked down, and only Rachel grabbing his jumper and dragging him with the crowd had spared him from being crushed. Now, as he sat on the care next to the school, he was lucky that the scratches on his chest from where her nails had stabbed through his clothes and the emerging bump on the back of his head were the worst of his injuries. The demonstration had been forcibly dispersed an hour ago, and quarter of an hour after that the demons had been ordered to leave. They had gone in a block, though the police hadn't tried to stop the few who had decided to loiter. Now the police presence had reduced to one car waiting on a street corner, and a mobile CCTV van driving slowly around the area. Toby leaned into Rachel when she put her arms around him, staring at the empty street. Well, it's safe to say we're not hiding in the shadows anymore, he said. What a way to come out. Something needs to be done, Rachel said. We can't go through this every day. It's insane. Yeah, he agreed. What can we do, though? There's more of them than us, and most of us are more afraid to go outside than we were when we had to keep our existence a secret. He groaned and put his head in his hands. Standing a little away from them, he heard Hazel say, There's a small group of lads hanging around a few streets away. It says they move out of sight whenever the police van goes past, and she saw them from the demo. So what do you want to do about them? Miles asked. Toby raised his head and called over. How many are there? Hazel checked her phone, reading over the text she'd been sent. Six. Possibly a few more, keeping the distance as backup. What do we reckon? Toby said as he looked at Rachel, then around at the rest of his friends. There was a pause. What? Ellen said. You mean like, can we fight them? Why not? Said Ben. John shook his head. That's what they want. We fight with them and either we get battered or if we win. There's more of us. We'll win. Ben said. Yeah, but then we're the aggressors and they have more reason to hate us. To be fair, they already hate us, Rachel said. My worry is whether that'll make more people hate us and then tomorrow's protests even bigger. Or maybe it'll give more demons the confidence to stand up for themselves, no matter how big they are. Ellen said, if we do that enough, and they know that trying to make our lives hell only results in broken bones, then it'll force them to stop doing this and we can get on with our lives. John and Rachel both looked sceptical. I think I agree with that, Toby offered. They won't go away if we ignore them. We're not ignoring them though, John said. But that doesn't mean we have to escalate things to the point where someone can get really hurt. Like those two kids who got hit today. Well, yeah, like that, but worse. This will only make it worse. Toby looked at Kev, who up until now had said nothing. He only shrugged and gestured at Miles and Hazel. Yes, as units watching them for now, Hazel said. Plus, there are more of us hanging about, so you don't have to worry about there being a kickoff. 
Oh, you could feel his face warming. I'm worried about the kickoff happening when we're not expecting it. You know as well as I do that the guild can't be everywhere at once, especially because the apocalypse and finding Noir do have to take priority. I said I want demons to be organized enough to defend ourselves, and I meant it. So what do you want to do? Leave them for now, Mar said. Catching Toby's look, he held his hands up. Just for now. You want to get the demons organized, so focus on that. Make sure that tomorrow and after you're prepared so that no kids get hurt and can go in safely. Get spotters in place to look out for stragglers like the ones we're talking about. When you've got all that sorted and you know that the people you need to keep safe are safe, then you can worry about retaliation. Alright. That satisfied Toby and the others, although Rachel and John both made protestations that this still amounted to an unnecessary escalation. That argument would have to wait for another time though. Because for now, Toby was tired, and all he wanted to do was get off the street. When Hazel caught up with Jess and her unit, Mars wasn't with her, as he had left soon after Toby and the other demons. As they headed back to the guild's office, this was the first thing Jess remarked on. I'm getting really fed up with that lad, you know. What's his problem, anyway? Don't know, Hazel said. Well, whatever it is, I just wish he'd give over. I just can't deal with him. I'm sure he will. He just needs time. Yeah, I get that he's been through a lot. I do. But we all have. He's letting it eat him up in, from the inside. It's not good for him. He frowned. Plus, it's not like we can take time off from the end of the world. Why don't you tell him that you're worried about him then? Instead of having a go whenever you see him. Because he's a fucking dickhead, that's why. Hazel suppressed a laugh give Jess a stern look yeah I know it doesn't make sense it just is they walked on in silence for a few minutes during which time the lack of conversation seemed to grow heavier between them eventually Hazel said how's Kit oh he's alright Jess said with a shrug actually I think I've scared him a bit because I've been floating the idea of us moving in together he's not keen on the idea what no he's up for it he hardly spends any time in his flat anymore anyway, so it makes sense, but I may have tried a little too hard to wind him up. Having spent enough time with Jess recently and discussed just about every aspect of each other's lives, Hazel was more than familiar with the mischievous smile now growing on her friend's face. What did you do? I told him how the only downside of us living together would be my mum pestering us on when we were going to get married and have kids, and then I started talking about when we were going to get married and have kids. Did he believe you? He went very pale. The pair of them laughed. He's still going to be here for guilt stuff if he's needed. Jess went on. This wasn't the first time they'd had this conversation. Hazel shook her head. Babe, don't worry about it. No, I know we've been busy as all hell lately, and I'm the one who persuaded Kit to go for the bricky job. It's just that it's worth doing while there are jobs going. And I didn't want us to both be doing this full time in case... I know. Jess, I said don't worry about it. I do though. We need more people, especially having to deal with a war between different vampire factions and all this hostility to demons on top of the world coming to an end. We can handle it, Hazel said, but they both knew how short-handed they were, and even if that couldn't be put down to a single individual not working for the guild, 
The weight of it pushed them back into silence for the rest of the way back to the office. Chapter 25 The top deck was dark and mostly silent. Tarpaulin had been laid over the pool for the night, and bar those who had retired to their rooms, most of the cruise liner's passengers were in the ballroom. Though faint, the sound of the band, playing some big band or swing number from the 40s, carried up to the open air. Leaning on the railings, two old men smoked cigars while looking out at the shimmering black mass that was the Mediterranean. There's a few of them now, one of the men, Bill, said. Messages from God or the second coming, they reckon they are. I don't buy it, of course. But they did appear just after all their competitors got struck down with boils and sores and now everybody's taking them seriously. It's a hell of a thing. Frank grunted in agreement before continuing to puff on his cigar. But the thing is, you see, Bill went on, those other guys were all old men. Like us. I'm not what you call happy about this end of the world business. But we can at least say we've had a good run of it. What about the young'uns? The kids just getting their first homes and first real jobs. Teenagers who haven't seen the real world yet. Babes still on the mama's teats. You know what I'm saying? Frank grunted again. Ran straight. I just... The boat rocked and they lost their footing. Frank lurched backwards and then fell forward into the railing, cursing when his cigar fell out of his mouth into the sea. Bill landed on his tailbone, crying out first from the impact and then from the lit end of the cigar, landing on his trousers. The shaking subsided as the sound rose. Just as the last time, it started as a low hum and escalated to drown out everything else. The two men covered their ears as they recovered their footing. When the sound died out, there was a commotion as passengers and crew hurried up to the deck, all craning their necks up to the sky. There was a flash of white light, which then streaked across the sky, a luminous tail forming behind it as it moved. A number of voices rose. At least no fire and blood this time, said one, to which another responded. Well, why'd you come up if you thought that was going to happen, you old fool? Is that a shooting star? It looks pretty. Well, this isn't as bad as the last one. The shooting star took a downward turn, disappearing behind a hilltop on the horizon that was populated with numerous lights. Several moments later, there was a flash and for a moment the sky was as bright as if it were daylight. It had faded and the darkness had returned when the bang reached them, but there was no aftershock and the boat didn't rock. Those poor guys, whoever was on the receiving end of that impact, Bill said. Frank grunted. There was a scream behind them. They turned to see most of the crowd dashing to get below deck. Two women had hold of the arms of a man who was dangling upside down in midair. Another man was using his cane to hit the tentacle which had hold of him. More tentacles appeared along the bow of the ship. Something wet and heavy landed on Frank's shoulders and wrapped around his neck. Bill turned just in time to see his old friend being dragged off the ship and into the sea. It was early afternoon on the west coast of North America when the trumpet sounded and the shooting star followed it. A sound as though a prolonged thunderstorm was setting the sky on fire, followed the flash, and a streak of burning white light plummeted from the heavens. Visible across half the world, it crashed into the Canadian Rocky Mountains with an impact that could be heard for 200 miles in every direction. Ringrose Peak collapsed, 
and the resulting lands lie buried Lake O'Hara and a considerable trench of the surrounding forest. At the centre of the impact crater, a man with sandstone red skin, straw-coloured hair that reached his waist, and great silver wings on his back lay bound in chains. The crater was inaccessible by land due to where the impact had been, but within two hours military helicopters were hovering around the site. It took a further hour and a half for the debate over what to do with the semi-conscious creature which had fallen to conclude, with orders coming in over the radio to pick him up. However, as one helicopter lowered a group of soldiers into the crater, there was a sudden clamour over the radio. Before they were able to decipher the shouting and the warnings, the rapid flap of wings had come and gone, and another winged man was headed back towards the Atlantic carrying the one who was chained in his arms. The helicopters weren't equipped to give chase, so two fighter jets were dispatched. They quickly caught up with the rescuer and his quarry, only to have six more of the creatures descend upon them from above. Save the one in chains, who wore only the robes in which he had been cast down. All of them were garbed in obsidian plate armour. Each carried a sword whose blade looked silver, but shimmered with blue when the light hit it. They used these swords to smash the glass into the cockpits of the planes so that they could trigger the ejector seats and be rid of their pursuers, which was when all trace of the creatures was lost. Leanne perched herself on the edge of the couch and put her laptop and electronic dictaphone on the coffee table. Across from her, Laurent de Castle now leaned back in his armchair and put his hand at the side of his head as he regarded her. Her eyes flicked back up to him intermittently as she sat up. Are you nervous, Miss Hollister? He said in pitch-perfect Queen's English. His eyes, a deep emerald green, didn't leave hers. She looked him in the eye and smiled. Not at all, she said, consciously smothering her usually broad Liverpoolian accent. Just curious, I guess. I'm not what you expected. I'm not sure, to be honest. She pressed record and allowed herself to relax her posture slightly. Maybe that's where we can start. What do you think people expect? The short answer is... Not me. He smiled, the wrinkle at the corner of his mouth marking the only line on his smooth brown skin. The suit he was wearing was tailored, freshly pressed and far from cheap. He was well-groomed, charming and completely at ease with himself. Their surroundings, a bare, cold room with paint peeling off the walls and no furniture beyond what they were using, seemed at odds with her impression of him. People expect either Nosferatu or Dracula, he went on. If we are not hideous, monstrous predators hiding in the dark, then we are seductive creatures who don't hunt our prey but make it want our deadly kiss. There are variations, of course, but in the end it comes back to those two archetypes. Neither is the truth. She realised that she'd been watching too intently the movements of his mouth as he spoke. She shifted her eyes and swallowed. So what is the truth? That we are just another species trying to survive. We did so in the shadows out of necessity, because the last time humanity as a whole was aware of us we were hunted to near extinction. But we are not monsters. Grotesque or romantic. Our dispositions are as varied as they are in humans, and I won't deny that you'll find the low and vicious among our number, but you'll find so many more who are neither. And the blood drinking? She tensed as she said it, but he only smiled, 
Yes, the blood drinking. Unfortunately, it is a necessity for our survival, as that above all else is what defines one as a vampire. Nonetheless, it doesn't follow that humans are our prey, or that such consumption should be fatal, or lack consent. Consent? Yes. Laurent frowned. Those who assault and murder to feed are outcasts from our community, and the customs we follow. Unlike them, the majority of us form close friendships with those who gift us with sustenance, and do not feed until there is a bond of mutual trust and respect. Our relationship with those who nourish us should not be antagonistic, but symbiotic. I take it that's one of the reasons for opening these nightclubs? She asked. You are intuitive. He leaned forward now, his eyes boring into her own. She felt a thrill as she returned his gaze. Perhaps I could show you around the rest of the building while we talk. Before she could consider this, Laurent was standing and took her hand in his own. That settled the matter, and Leanne disconnected the dictaphone from her laptop so she could carry it with her as she took the tour. After making a sound of disgust, Bri dropped the newspaper on the floor and stood up from the battered old couch. Gaz glanced over at him briefly from the other side of the room before returning his attention to the map spread out in front of him. You've reached the centre spread, I take you, he said. Told you, Tass said without taking her eyes from the window. Our relationship with those who nourish us should not be antagonistic, but symbiotic. Bry affected the hammy Transylvanian accent as he quoted. He made his way across the room. How can he say this shite with a straight face? And how are people actually buying it? I'm sure it's an act, Gaz said. He's playing up for the papers. Now nah, that's the sad thing. From what I've seen in the past of the Van Fury, they're always this pretentious and self-important. Half the reason nobody's paid attention to them for a few hundred years. Which in turn is probably the reason they're asserting themselves now, trying to regain and impose their authority, Gaz said. That's not our only problem, Gaz said. He's thrust us out into the open. Even if not everyone believes in vampires, enough do. Makes it harder for us to feed and turn people without some have-a-go heroes deciding they're Sam and Dean Winchester. Not to mention the Van Fury themselves doing it as part of their good vampire shtick. Bright stood next to Gaz and looked at the map. It showed Liverpool, with different areas around the city highlighted in pink where they had suffered attacks. He whistled. That's a lot. Yeah. All the more reason that I don't like these fuckers. Ass turned away from the window and walked around the opposite side of the table. We need to up our game then, she said. We've been organising and building our ranks here a lot longer than them, so instead of just trying to defend ourselves when they attack us, we can take the fight to them. We can also undermine their nice vampire PR campaign and make people really terrified of us, since we can't exactly unpublicise our existence. She's not wrong, I said. I never am, she called back as she wandered away towards the stairs. Where are you going? I'm hungry. Gaz wandered over to the window she had been staring out of and looked down. He saw two young lads sitting on a bench in an otherwise empty street, eating takeaway food. Within half a minute, Tass came into view. He went back to the table, 
not bothering to watch the kill. Over the course of a week ahead of the opening of the castle now, the Liverpool Echo ran a series of centre page spreads on the vampire who and the club. In them, he revealed details ranging from the story of how he became a vampire in 1674 to his vision for a world where humans and vampires coexisted. It was this vision which inspired the most interest in debate. The national press took sides on whether Laurent should be believed, and opinion was fiercely divided both on the question of him actually being a vampire and on whether or not vampires could be friends of humanity or just their predators. But no matter what line you took, everyone knew the stories of the vampires who saved humans. They started out as rumours, passed from word of mouth to Twitter and blogs, eventually making their way into the press. Most prolific in Liverpool, as Gaza's determination to face down the Van Fury saw a massive escalation and casualties on both sides. They were repeated around the country. Laurent became only the first vampire entrepreneur preaching coexistence. A network of similar figures soon emerged across the British Isles. In the meantime, the Guild found themselves on the fringes of the conflict, with the Van Fury refusing to engage them, so that in effect both groups were just fighting against Gaza's vampires. The result of this was that opposition to vampires, overrepresented in sections of the media, wasn't matched by public opinion. Whilst pickets at the Agadatha School by the Human Defence League retained the numbers seen on that first day, even if both the police and demons had learned lessons quickly in dealing with those numbers, the first demonstration by the British League against vampire rights nowhere near matched its prominence on newspaper opinion pages. Miles was perched on a rooftop over the road from the castle now, whose opening night was the target of the protest. Directly below him, a group of maybe 50 protesters were contained by steel barricades and watched by a small group of police. They were quiet and restrained, with even the sound of the woman on the megaphone lost in the general din of Liverpool city centre on a Friday night. Opposite them, red velvet ropes held a crowd four or five deep which stretched up half the street. It was a strange mix. Men and women in suits and cocktail dresses pressed in with those in fetish wear, leather trench coats and combat trousers, or other gothic clothing. In front of the rope, a long row of suited bouncers all built like professional wrestlers, stood silent and staring in the direction of the protest opposite. Every single one was a vampire, as was the gangly doorman with the clipboard who stood at the head of the queue in front of the red ribbon tied over the front of the door. A growing stream of people moved to and fro between the picket against the club and the line to get inside. Occasionally they would stop to see what was going on, and eventually the police relented to let one younger man out of the protest pen to distribute leaflets, if he stayed on the same side of the road. Curious, people took them greedily, but they soon found their way to the floor as the more pressing business of whatever club they were headed to took precedence again. Movement on the rooftop opposite caught Miles' eye. It was the same group he had encountered a little under a month ago, their sabres currently sheathed as they moved to the edge of the roof to watch the activity below. They didn't seem to have spotted him yet, so he slunk back to the opposite end of his own roof and dropped to the ground on an empty side street. He made his way towards the cattle now through the crowds, and stuck to the side of the street that the protest was on. The doorman and several of the bouncers glanced at him as he got closer to them, but otherwise paid him no mind. Miles took a leaflet off the man standing outside the pen, and pretended to read it as he stopped and scanned the street. He spotted Katie moving past the line of bouncers. She was in a dress, and as far as most people could tell was just on a night out. 
But he saw the way she was casting about as she moved and gathered the guild and the presence in the area. No doubt keeping an eye on this opening night. If you agree with us, then you can get more involved. What? He said, glancing up at the leafleter, who had read his feigned interest in the piece of paper in his hand as a potential for recruitment. I was just saying that if you agree with us, I'm not going to join you, mate. This took the leafleter by surprise, and he stuttered. But you can't possibly think that we can live alongside these creatures as though they aren't the servants of evil. I don't think that. Mars put the leaflet back in the man's hands. But, you know, good luck petitioning away the forces of darkness. He didn't hear the reply he got, as at that moment the crowds began to part down the bottom of the street. A cheer arose from those queuing outside the club, egged on by gestures from the doorman whilst the protesters at last became more animated with chanting and heckling. Miles moved back against the wall and watched the silver Mercedes with tinted windows make its way slowly up the road to stop a little way from the club's entrance. When Laurent emerged, his coffee-coloured skin shining as though he had overdone the moisturiser and his cream soup pristine, the noise intensified. He raised his arm and waved at his supporters, milking the scene before walking over to the door. He shared a few whispered words with the doorman, and Miles noticed Laurent's attention flicker towards him for just a moment. Then he greeted those at the front of the queue and said something to the nearest bouncer, which was passed down the line to all the others. There was no microphone or attempt at a speech, because the noise and bustle of the street made it impractical. So after that, he cut the ribbon and was the first to enter the club, with another round of cheering and, from across the road, heckling. There was a bang and a flash of light somewhere in the queue, followed immediately by several more along the street, and one to the left of the protest pen. This was met with screams and cries. Smoke rose following each flash, making it hard to see much clearly. Through the mist, Miles was able to make out movement by the pen, in front of the velvet ropes and at the door to the castle now. This was punctuated by shouts, growls and screams. After a moment, the smoke began to clear, and withered the temporary paralysis which had overcome most of the people in the area and they tried to flee from where they stood. Every single one of the bouncers lay dead, their cleaved heads scattered around the pile of their corpses. The police still had their heads, but their throats had been torn out and their blood was still on the mouths of their killers. Both the protesters and those queuing found themselves hostage. Not that this stopped them from taking pictures or video with their phones. Laurent had been dragged from the building, pinned to the ground by a knee on his back and a machete at his neck. Gaz, Brian, Tass stood over him as his captors, with nearly a hundred vampires on the street under their command. Miles used the confusion to retreat to the perimeter that had formed around the scene. The fleeing crowds had bottlenecked at either end of the street, the scramble to get away tempered by the morbid curiosity of some to see what was happening. He stopped there, eyes scanning around him for any familiar faces, as his mind raced over what to do. Rosie lifted her head and whined indignantly when Hazel's phone buzzed. The dog was a dead weight draped across her legs, though that didn't matter much when she was curled up on the couch. The film she had put on serving as background noise while she drifted in and out of sleep. Now Rosie was in the way and Hazel had to sit up and shove her across the couch in order to get at the phone. She looked apologetically at her mother, who smiled back at her before stepping out of the room. Conscious that her sister was in bed upstairs, she went into the kitchen rather than the hall to answer the call. It was Miles, 
which she wasn't expecting. Hello? Whose unit's out in town tonight? He was almost shouting over the noise in the background. She frowned at how abrupt he was, but didn't mention it. Guesses? Why? How many of them? Mostly reconnaissance, so around ten or so. She stood up and stretched, trying to get feeling back in her legs. Miles, what's going on? What's this about? Alfred's just attacked the opener of the castle now, he said. He's got a whole load of people hostage right in the middle of the street. Shit, she said, tensing. How many of them are there? Almost a hundred. Okay, I'll get people out there now. Good, I'll try and find Jess now then. There was a pause, during which she thought he'd hung up. Then he said, Thanks. She found herself smiling at that, then realised that she had drifted into a semi-conscious trance. It had been a long and exhausting week. She shook her head, then went through into the garden so that the cold would keep her awake as she made phone calls. Chapter 26 A street away from the attack, Jess's unit regrouped just outside an empty car park and Katie recounted what she had seen. As she was talking, Jess's phone buzzed in her pocket. She checked it and saw that she had a text off Miles. Where are you? Gas led attack. 100 vamps as hostages. She looked around at those with her from a unit. There was nowhere near enough of them to do anything effective. She replied, Duke Street, only 10 of us. Cheers, she said to Katie when she had finished speaking. I've just had a text from Miles who says there are about 100 vamps there, which we can't deal with on our own. Another text from Miles. On my way to you, Hazel sorting reinforcements. He passed on the news, and then within 10 minutes, Miles found them. She was still angry with him, she found once she saw him face to face. But this wasn't the time to voice it. Instead, she balled her fists and introduced the rest of her group to him. He nodded to Katie, Zach and Sean with a degree of familiarity, but didn't say anything to them. I'm not sure how long the standoff's going to last, he said. Gaz obviously wants this Laurent guy alive for something, or this would have just been a smashing grab and they'd be gone by now. That might buy us time to take advantage of the situation. This isn't about revenge, he said, grabbing his arm. Remember that. We wait for Hazel, then we get the humans out of there. His eyes looked through her, but he nodded. I mean it, she told him. I know, people first. I'm not that far gone. He let go of his arm then hesitated. There was a tension in her stomach, and as angry as she was with him, she wanted to throw her arms around him and hug him. This only made her angrier, so she turned away. Well, she said, let's get back there and see what's going on. Now on his back, Laurent de Castle now stared up at Gaz, locking eyes so that Gaz felt he couldn't give an inch by looking away. Laurent's suit was muddied and creased from being thrown to the ground, yet still he gave the impression of perfect calm. He said nothing, made no protest, merely waited patiently for whatever was to happen. Realising that he wasn't about to panic, Gaz gestured to Tass, who removed her knee from the captive's chest and stood back. Then he put out a hand and helped Laurent to his feet. The air was thick with the panic in the crowds of people pressed together at each end of the street. Beyond them, music still played, underlain with the din of conversation. 
or hear the silence pressed as everyone waited for what might happen next. I gave the disruption to you, big knight, I said, but I figured it was past time me and you had a conversation. I had guessed as much by the fact that my head remains on my shoulders. Laurent replied, his voice as calm and measured as his face. You wish to treat with me, yes? To compel me to call an end to the war against your people? Something like that. Then, so that I cannot be accused of deception, I should warn you up front that your efforts will come to naught. Even if I was susceptible to your crude intimidation, which I assure you I am not, it would make little odds since I do not have the power to dictate such a change to policy. Gaz looked to Tass, who scowled and ran a thumb across her throat. He turned his attention back to Laurent. I should warn you up front, then, that my people are eager to cut your fucking head off. This is understandable, Laurent said with a shrug. If futile. Gaz could feel the heat rising in his face. He clenched his fists, but resisted the temptation for now to rise to the bait. Right, so if I take your word for it, then you're just a figurehead? Not at all. I am the Viceroy of Liverpool. But this policy is not simply mine for the city. It is dictated above my rank and goes far beyond my territory. By who? By the High Council of the Van Fury, of course. Bryce stepped up close to him and said, We need to move this along. Listen, friend, Laurent said. I do not wish to be at war with you or to see our kind slaughter one another senselessly. But this is not the way to bring that to an end. We're not going to submit ourselves to your rule. You have to realise that. Laurent nodded. I do. And that was not my proposal. Clearly we need to talk. But we should do so under the correct conditions. I suggest a formal cessation of hostilities to allow for negotiations. Right, and we're to take this on good faith? Not at all. But I have soldiers on the rooftop and in the surrounding streets who would outnumber your own by two to one. They will not act without my order, and to demonstrate that I am serious, I will ask them to stand down. Gaz swallowed, suddenly tense. He looked up and, surely for his benefit, several shapes peered down from the surrounding roofs. If Laurent was feeling smoke for outflanking him, his expression didn't show it. Instead, he only said, I am confident that if a fight occurs, my side will prevail. But there has been enough bloodshed already. I cannot deviate from the policy set by the High Council, but within it, I am hopeful that we can accommodate one another. Please accept my offer. He put out his hand. Gaz hesitated, but both Bry and Tass nodded their assent. There didn't appear to be any other choice. Gaz took Laurent's hand and shook it. Hostilities between us are ceased then, ending negotiations in a month's time. Laurent said, My subjects will not interfere with your feeding, though I would ask that you are more discreet in your habits. Your people will not interfere with my affairs. Now leave, and I will deal with the aftermath of this situation. It took only a matter of minutes to withdraw, scaling the building opposite the castle now, then dropping back to street level in alleyways or side streets and drifting away. From the rooftops, Laurent's subjects, as he had called them, made themselves very visible and watched them leave with hands on the hilt of their sheathed sabres. 
Adam Kenny, Bryce said once they were back at the burned out club. He could have easily slaughtered us back there. Why didn't he? He knows that there's far more of us than we had there, Pat said. We should have used everyone we had. Jad shook his head. No, I mean, you're right that he knew that it wasn't our full strength. But revealing what that strength is would have showed our hand too early. He doesn't know how many of us there are. And we're clearly more of a nuisance than he ever anticipated. So while he can't just eradicate us, he's going to play for a time and find another way to keep us from interfering with the Van Fury's designs. And what are we going to do? Let ourselves be bought off? Not at all. But we need to play for time too. We're not the only ones resisting their domination. But our species has been too disorganised for too long, so we need to start making alliances of our own. With Gaz's retreat, Laurent moved quickly to announce that he had secured the release of the hostages. More members of the guild had arrived in the city centre by now, but too late to intervene in the situation that had been resolved in their absence. Jess regrouped those present to react to any further incidents, but there was no more vampire activity that night. Still shaken, those queuing for the castle now were sated with the promise of either their first three drinks free, or, if the ordeal had been too much, the fare for a taxi home. More of his vampires emerged to cover the bodies in the streets and keep the public from the area until the police arrived. Approaching sirens could now be heard not far away. The protesters were invited, with the subtlest hint of threat, to leave the area, and in their haste to do so they abandoned their signs. Having made his way back to the club in time to see all of this, Miles followed the woman who had been leading the demonstration on a megaphone until she was some distance away from that street. She was a short woman, in her late thirties, with a runner's physique. Her black hair was cropped short on her head, and there was a narrow scar on her left cheek, long faded but noticeable for being a lighter shade of brown than the rest of her face. He called to her as gently as he could. Yet still she jumped and had to put a hand over her mouth to suppress a scream. Miles could smell the fear coming thick from her and see it in her wide eyes and shaking hands. You were at the protest, right? I, um, uh, she stammered. It's okay, I'm not going to hurt you or anything. I just need to talk to you about it. Who are you? She still looked unsure, regarding him closely. My name's Miles. What about you? Naomi? Okay, Naomi. But all I want to know is what happened when that incident? Do you know what it was or what was said? She shook her head, then reconsidered. I don't know what the other vampires were saying to the castle now because it was too far away from them where we were, but... She chewed her lip as she remembered. Just before the second group fled, I overheard bits of their conversation. Something about a truce. A truce? Are you sure? Yeah, one of them was moaning about it. We can't have a truce with them, they want us all dead. Or something like that. But he was told to shut up and then they left. As he processed this information, he thanked Naomi for it. And lied that he was a reporter when she asked why he wanted it. Seeing that she was still shaken by her earlier ordeal, Miles let her go. From afar, he followed her until she found a taxi and he knew that she was safe. The next day, Miles was in an office on the second floor of the guild's building in Bootle with Joel. 
The office was a mess, with various papers strewn about the computer desk in the corner, the bin overflowing, and open books spread out on a table in the middle of the room. The shelves on one wall contained books in a disorder which indicated most of them had been taken down and replaced in different positions more than once. Joel showed Miles a map of the world pinned to the wall opposite the bookshelves. Red pins were stuck in the map at various points, interspersed with much less frequent yellow pins. The red pins are events that appear to be omens or portents, Joel said. So you've got stuff ranging from freak weather formations which emerge from nowhere to goats born with two heads, children speaking in tongues, that sort of thing. There are a few anomalous ones, but for the most part they're all happening in clusters around the same area. The epicenter of these clusters appears to be moving west as well. So where it started in Thailand a month and a half ago, it's now near the border between Nepal and Tibet. Local guild outfits up there are on alert but I'm not even entirely sure how we can pinpoint or identify these guys. And until we can, I can't do anything about them, Miles said with a frown. What are the yellow pins? That's where actual plagues or disasters have happened. Joel gestured to several of the pins in turn. Here, a river turned to blood and killed the fish population of the local villages subsist on. This one was a raid of fire. At this one, the recently dead arose and started eating the living. What, like zombies? George A. Romero zombies, right down to the moans. Jesus. Yeah. But anyway, that's all I have for now. Are you coming to this meeting? Yeah. He held up a hand. No comments though, because I've had enough of that from Jess and from Hazel, and I can't be asked. Joel said nothing and followed him to the boardroom. The only two other people not yet seated around the table were Jess and Hazel. Jack said they were debriefing those who had been out the night before and would be up shortly. Joel took a seat, but Miles stayed standing as he felt uncomfortable sitting when waiting for something. It was about five minutes later when Jess and Hazel came in. He nodded to them both in greeting, earning a scowl from his sister and a smile from Hazel. Once they were sat, he took a place so that there was an empty chair on either side of him. As they got down to business, Jess ran through the previous night's events from their original task of keeping an eye on the opening of the castle now to the attack by Gaz's vampires and not being able to call in reinforcements in time to respond to it. You got off straight after that, she said to Miles, the disapproval thick in her tone. Don't suppose you found out what happened? Yeah, actually, he said, a smile crossing his face that made Jess's scowl deepen. I caught up with the woman who was leading the protest, Naomi. She said she overheard Gaz's lot talking about some kind of truce. A truce? I don't know the details, but given how quick the whole thing just ended, I think Gaz's lot have managed to force some kind of stalemate. Things might quiet down for a little bit now, giving us room to breathe. We have to take advantage then, Taylor said, and take the fight to Gaz. But if we do that, Jeff said, are we just giving this fan fury the upper hand? He's right. Miles agreed. Joel, what have you dug up about them? Joel consulted the notepad in front of him. A lot, but it's all old, he said. There's no mention of when exactly they first formed, but they seem to have been the dominant vampire power in Europe through the Middle Ages. They're reported as having a rigid hierarchy and an extremely strict code of conduct with advancements only possible through single combat and transgressions punishable by mutilation and other brutal disciplinary measures. 
Some legends also refer to those of higher enough rank having human servants who they granted their mortal life to be their eternal companion. That makes it sound so cosy, Worth said, as everyone turned to look at him. Anyway, Joel went on. Since the vampire race was in a minority and constantly hunted, it seems that they were the ones who popularised the idea of grooming willing victims and feeding off them for a long time before finally killing them. In some cases, the human would live for years, effectively as a slave. A lot of them managed to keep diaries, since they were treated relatively well, and it meant that vampires were harder to find than when they were just hunted and killed. Sometime in the mid-1800s, mentions of them stop, although it looks like the Vampuri fell out of favour, and what remained of the hierarchy retreated to somewhere in Central Europe. This left the vampire race fragmented and weak, though with the apocalypse it looks like the Vampuri have decided to try and take power again. Other guild outfits report that what's happening here is being mirrored across half the world. Though if we take out Gaz's vamps, Taylor said, then we just help them rule the roost. It may not be as obvious as with Gaz, and it may put them at odds with Nuadu, but they're still killing and abusing people while pretending to be the friendly face of vampirism. I know, Miles said. We can't just leave Gaz to it, obviously, but we need to take the fight to the Van Fury too. We need to know more about how they operate though. So we'll need spies. Spies? Hazel said, as in plural. You're the only vampire among us, and I wouldn't want to bet that they don't know who you are. I'm not talking about me. Or vampires, actually. He pulled a newspaper cutting out of his pocket and passed it to her. It showed a picture of a protest outside the town hall by a small group of students, mostly goths. The caption indicated that the protest was in support of recognition and rights for the vampire community. You're kidding me. She passed the clipping around. Nope. Jesus. Yeah. I think we can use these vampire sympathizers to gain more information though. Do we have anybody who might be able to infiltrate them? Don't look at me, Toby said. Obviously we're out. In turn, everyone around the table all shook their heads. I think I might know who we can use, Hazel said. Great, Miles said with a smile, which encouraged a smile out of Hazel too. Then I think we might have a plan. Thank you very much for listening. If you enjoyed this, then please subscribe to my YouTube channel, Philip Dickens Books, for more writing and story related content. From the Hill of Megado is also available on your favourite podcast service. There's a new episode of this story every Monday, and next week we'll see how the truce between vampire factions goes, as well as revisiting the Antichrists and the Witnesses. See you then!